All right, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for taking time out of your Monday evening and uh, joining on the study tonight. So this is the second uh, in a potentially long series on, on Messianic prophecies. So the nice thing is, is that don't worry if you missed one, like if you missed last week's study, it is on the New Creation Studies Facebook page uh, that Nate Cox has. Um, and it's going to be on the same day that the study actually happens. Um, these uh, GoToMeeting webinars get recorded. It takes a little time to compile, and then I'm able to uh, click a link and share that <clears throat> on the New Creation site. Last week, we studied kind of the, the introductory piece. You know, why do we study Messianic prophecy? What are the different, uh, the different principles that we look for that, that lay out that something is Messianic? Um, what's the value of studying Messianic prophecy? And, and I'm just going to hit on that just, just momentarily. Um, and, you know, really kind of the value that we have, you know, pretty, probably for, first and foremost, is that, and we were just talking about this a little bit, the, the Bible stands alone as a, a book that, that has proof to back it up, that, that has proof that its existence comes from God. Uh, in other words, if, if you have something that's written by God, you know, God's going to sign it at, at the end and, and leave his fingerprints all the way through it. Um, that's what we have with the scripture. There, there's no other book out there that can actually state that it has divine traits, uh, things that transcend humans' ability to be able to perform. Um, so when you look at all of these different types of prophecies, and, and they're, they're not vague at all, as you'll see as we start going through these. Um, a couple of the ones we're going to go through tonight, we're going to go through some of the prophecies in Genesis. Some of these are a little bit more general. Um, others are really specific. And you'll notice as we start going through these prophecies, what you're going to find is that they start out fairly general, and then as things progress they do end up getting really specific uh, until you know we get to the end into the major prophets right around the destruction of Jerusalem um, and the post-exilic prophets we're talking very very specific um, in in what it is uh, that they're that they're showing is going to happen to this Messiah also we find out you know who the Messiah is going to be and what God plans on having him do uh, and I think for our edification, for our benefit, <clears throat> one of the things that we also find in this whole concept uh, is the fact that, uh, you know, who are these people that God is going to bring about? You know, there, there's always these big debates out there about the, uh, the potential of the Christian. You know, are we able to actually walk in the footsteps of Christ? Are we actually able to be the kinds of people that he calls us to be? Bottom line, can we do what he tells us to do? Uh, there's uh, lots of people out there that say, yes, we're supposed to strive uh, for this. And then you have uh, others, but we're not really going to get there. And then we have others that say, no, that's, that's the goal. That's, and what I mean by goal is a goal is something that's attainable. A goal is not something that's unachievable. Um, so <clears throat> what you'll see as we go through a lot of these prophecies is the fact that God Juxt, uh, puts in juxtaposition, the, in, he contrasts the people of the Old Covenant versus the people of the New Covenant. In the people of the Old Covenant, he told them how they're supposed to live, how they're supposed to walk, how they're supposed to act, and they never did it. The people of the New Covenant, he says, finally, I'm paraphrasing, of course, finally, I'm going to have a people that are going to be able to walk the way that I want them to walk, the way that I tell them to walk. It's because I'm going to put my spirit within them. I'm going, to, I'm going to forgive their sins. They're not going to have this huge weight on top of them. 
So, so these are really great things for us to be able to pay attention to. Um, so if you'll open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, the way I typically like to run these, uh, last week it was just Mondi and I, and we've quadrupled our attendance this week. And, and I think this is just going to kind of keep on growing as people, uh, you know, uh, find out, you know, about the study and, and those types of things. Um, and hopefully you find some value in it and, uh, you know, you'll want to, you want to keep coming back. Um, but what I typically like to do, you know, everybody's muted right now. Uh, I like to make this interactive. So uh, when, when I get to a certain point where it's kind of good to stop, I'll, I'll ask for questions, comments. Um, if, if you've got a question or a comment, just unmute uh, your, your little microphone there next to you. Uh, you'll see right now, you'll, you'll see a little microphone. It's got a line through it. You're able to, to click on that and, and unmute yourself. Uh, just remember to mute yourself back because uh, if we get a lot of lines open, we, we can get a lot of, uh, lot of feedback. Um, so we're going to be in, in Genesis chapter 3, and, and we know the context here, right? Genesis chapter 3. We're, we're dealing with the fall of mankind. We're dealing with, uh, you know, God created man, placed him in the garden, um, looked for a helper for him, couldn't find one, caused a deep sleep to come upon him, took a rib, formed woman, and he's like, yep, there we go, you know, right after their own kind. Uh, and they had one, one run rule, right? Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God told, told Adam very clearly, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. In the Hebrew, it's, it's very emphatic. In Hebrew, it says, the day you eat of it, death you shall die. So he's, he, when you want to emphasize something in Hebrew, you can do it with verb tenses, and other times you do it by repetition. So two deaths, doubly dead. You know, you're, you're really going to die here if you, if you eat of this. So we get to Genesis chapter 3, and, and we see what happens, right? The serpent's there. He's more crafty than any beast of the field. Uh, and he, he does, he does this, the thing that he does, right? Which is he misquotes God. He lies. See, what he stated was, did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, that's not what God said at all, was it? God said, from any tree of the garden, you can eat just this one you can't. The way Satan says it is, did God say you can't eat from any tree? It's a really key point to understand about the principle of how Satan operates. Satan is a master at twisting what God has said. He's excellent at it. He does it all the time. He, he, he really flips it on its head. So what we have to do is we really have to use wisdom uh, to, to determine you know, what the right thing is, uh, because there's a lot of competing voices out there, which is why we have to go back to the scripture. It's another reason why the study is so important to, to again, add that proof-based approach. So um, what he said uh, there, we'll go back to Genesis chapter three, um, there in verse one, where he says, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman, she, she does a pretty good job here. She says, uh, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now she, she adds a step, right? Um, God said the day you eat of it, you'll die. I don't know if something got lost in translation. Maybe Adam told her, Hey, you know what God said? Don't eat it. As a matter of fact, don't even touch it. Okay. Cause you're not going to be able to eat it if you don't touch it. Um, unless you're going to like 
you know, try to eat it when, you're, when it's hanging off the vine there or the, or the branch. So she adds a little extra step, whatever, right? It, it is what it is. And, and, and what happens next is, is Satan flat out lies, flat out lies. He says, uh, verse number, let's see, four. He says, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die for God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So what do we see here? There's a little bit of, well, there's a lot of lie and there's a little bit of truth in there. The truth is, you know what? Their eyes were going to be open, weren't they? And that's exactly what happened. I mean, as soon as they, they ate, their eyes were opened, recognized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. You know, do what they got to do. Um, but they did die. Now, they didn't die physically. They didn't keel over physically dead at that moment. But the process of physical death started, but spiritual death was instantaneous. Interesting. Think about it this way. God said they were going to die. They died and they couldn't see it with their physical eyes. I find this an interesting uh, extension of that. When we become Christians, when we believe, when we repent, when we confess, we're immersed. We can't physically see anything being born again. We can't physically see the old man dying. We can't physically see sins being washed away. But we are reborn. We are resurrected. We are remade. See, just like, now isn't it interesting, just like the, the, the death that took place in Genesis chapter 3 wasn't something that the physical eye could, could see take place. In the same way, the rebirth from that death is something that the physical eye can't see. You have to have a spiritual eye to see it. Now let's ask the question. When, even though the physical eye didn't see it, did they in fact die and were there consequences of their actions that proved the death? Absolutely. Absolutely there were. So one of the things that we see is that, is that this, this death that takes place and the life that takes, God is working on his, in the spiritual realm um, constantly, right? And just because we can't physically see something doesn't mean that it's not real, right? So again, just a, just a really interesting kind of, kind of correlation there. So we see that, you know, she, you know, she ate, she gave it to her husband. He ate, their eyes were opened. God comes walking around in the, in the cool of the evening, uh, asked where they were. And they said, we hid ourselves, you know, we're naked. And he said, well, who told you we're na you're naked? And the first thing he says, did you eat from the tree? All right. So let's, let's pick it up there. Um, verse, uh, verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So God, God asked Adam, what happened? This is, this is human nature. I mean, if, all it takes is one bite and human nature comes to the forefront. What, what do you say? The woman you gave to me. Uh, so... I, I don't know if he if he's actually stating, you know, trying to blame God for, for this. You know, hey, you're, I didn't ask for her. You put her with me. You know, it's it's kind of your fault. You, you can see the human wisdom there, can't you? Uh, so she gave me, and I ate. That that's at the last part, and I ate. Um, it's fully his fault. 
he knew what the what the rule was. He knew what the what the, what the uh, standard was, and, and he purposely violated it. And when God asked the woman, it's like, "Hey, serpent deceived me, and I ate." It's pretty honest, right? Serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, what we see then is God pronouncing curses, and this is typically how people look at the Old Testament, right? God pronouncing curses, um, and so. What he does is he starts with the serpent, and this is where we're going we're gonna to pick up for, for the prophecy. Okay, so let's pick up verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now here's where the prophecy comes in. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So Genesis 3.15 is the first messianic prophecy that we find. And I find it very interesting that God lays it out there right at the beginning. This did not catch God off guard. This did not, you know, God, you know, God wasn't sitting in heaven, you know, with a big smile on his face, you know, thinking, man, we did a really good job with this creation thing, didn't we? And then as he looks down and he sees, you know, the serpent and, and Eve interacting and he goes, oh no, oh no, what a, what's happening? And then when they eat and everything goes down the tubes, he's not like, oh no, what am I going to do now? I had no idea this was going to happen. Look, G the, the, the plan that involved Jesus coming was laid out before God ever said, let there be light. Okay. This whole thing was laid out because God is, is in the process of demonstrating his character to his creation, not only to mankind, but also to the angelic realm. And one of the things that he's there to do is, is to show people and show those angels, not only is he a just God, not only is he righteous, holy, strong, and mighty, but he's also full of compassion. He's also full of love. He's also full of mercy. Okay. He, you know, he's the God of the second chance, of the third chance, of the, of the 10,000th chance. And who better to demonstrate that on than us? You know, because we, we typically need those chances over and over again. So kind of behooves us, since God gives us that many chances ourselves, we should probably give other people those, those same chances. So we'll, we'll start breaking this down a little bit. Okay, so... We see that the first messianic prophecy occurs in the context of a curse. Um, and, but inside that curse, this, and you'll see this a lot as we go through things, in the middle of a very negative, possibly judgmental passage, it's, it's almost like God's kind of disgusted with the situation, but he also knows what he's going to do. So he goes ahead and looks forward to the future and says, oh, by the way, this is going to happen. In other words, this is going to get fixed. This is going to get, uh, the, the, the whole, this whole issue is going to get alleviated. Um, and so that's what he's doing right here. And he's in the middle of pronouncing the curse. And in the judgment of the serpent, here's what he says. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So that word for enmity, it is an active hatred. Now, this isn't just casual dislike. This is active hatred, okay? So the woman, it starts off there. I will put enmity between you and the woman. 
when the woman recognizes that she was the gateway by which this happened, there's going to be a very, very active hatred of her towards the serpent. And you can imagine, we, we, we know what happens next. You know, she's going to have the pain in childbirth greatly increased. You can imagine first, you know, when, when she has, you know, when she has Cain and Abel, uh, first off Cain, after she has him, I would imagine that active hatred multiplied, right? Um, no painkillers, no epidural, no nothing. Um, so you could see how that active hatred would go forth. And, and as they get kicked out of the garden, have to make a living by, you know, hacking through the, the, the creation with their own two hands and, and, you know, the thorns and thistles, the ground was going to wield up for them. You could see that's, that's where that active hatred is going to come. And again, as, as they get older, they see the wickedness that's brought on the earth as a result of what they allowed to come in, right? So again, active hatred continuing to blossom. So it's, it's between her and the serpent, but then it also says between your seed and her seed, right? So Satan's seed and Eve's seed. So basically posterity, what we're looking at here, we're, we're kind of alike, likening Eve to, to godly side and we're, we're likening Satan to, to, the, to the evil side. So the godly offspring, the evil offspring, there's going to be an act of hatred. We see that today. I don't know about you. I mean, I do. I mean, I, I know, I know y'all here. So there's an act of hatred in our lives for the things that Satan brings for him, for Satan himself. We don't have any mercy or compassion for him. We have mercy and compassion for all the people around us, but we have no mercy or compassion towards him. He is, he is the embodiment of everything that is evil. So our matter of fact, God specifically states that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but it is specifically against him, right? So that act of hatred extends even to today, right? And that's one of the things actually that, that Christians need to, need to better embrace because sometimes we view the things that Satan is involved in, the sin of this world. We view it as appealing. We, view, we can view it as something to, desirable to be involved in. In all actuality, God, if, when he's renewing our mind through, when we're renewing our mind through him, through the power of the spirit, through the scripture, one of the things we have to make sure we're, we're engaged in is a renewal of the mind towards sin. Increasing the active hatred of the things that Satan is involved in, the things that Satan brings about. So I think this is kind of an interesting, interesting concept for us to, to, to kind of, you know, consider a little bit. Uh, the next, next one, he says, he says, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and then it gets singular. He says, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So now there's, there's a singular paramount battle where there's one specific seed, a you, individual. And what this you is going to do to, to the serpent is that he's going to bruise you on the head and you're going to bruise him on the heel. Now, the, the word for bruise you on the head, the word for bruise there, that's, that's being uh, referenced to uh, what the seed of the woman is going to do to Satan. In Hebrew, that's a double accusative. Now, so even though it's translated bruise in the New American Standard, maybe some of your, uh, maybe some of your, your versions 
um, might say crush. And that's actually the, the better translation. So the, the first bruise in Genesis 3.15 is actually crush. Now I've got a, I always lose track of my footnotes here. Um, yeah, so New America Standard does have crush there. And the reason is, is that is in Hebrew, that's a double accusative. So it's, it's for emphasis. Um, and the U for the serpent is obviously still singular. So there are some folks out there that say the serpent in the garden is different than Satan. They're not the same. Well, here's the interesting thing. The U that the Messiah crushed wasn't a physical serpent. It was Satan. And we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit too. But um, so this lets us know more along the lines of the identity uh, of, of who this serpent is, um, because it's the same, the same individual that did all of this back in the garden is the same individual that is going to get his head crushed. Now notice, in the crushing of the head, the heel of the one doing the crushing is going to be bruised. And that is just the regular bruise. It's, there's no double accusative there. So there is... You know, if, if you ever um, you ever stepped really hard on on a on a rock on with your heel and gotten one of those really deep bruises, it's just really difficult to walk on. You're limping and it, it's painful. Um, or you know, you step on one of your kids' uh, you know toys in the middle of the night. That's that's probably a little bit more uh, more understandable. Uh, you know, Legos, right? There's nothing more painful uh, than stepping on a Lego. Uh, or a matchbox car, something along those lines. That's, that's kind of the picture that we're seeing here. Uh, a hard crushing blow that, that does a, a major bruise to the heel. While painful and debilitating, you'll heal. You'll heal. And if, and if you think about what Jesus did when, when he, he did end up dying for us, what a great picture. Now, let's think about this. This was written 4,000 years before Jesus Christ came. Now, you'll, you're going to get, if you, if you go on the internet and you look for dates on when Genesis was written, you're going to get a lot of different viewpoints. Um, the liberal theologians out there say Genesis 1 through 11 is all mythology. Uh, none of it's real. Um, and that... The, the, the predominant theory out there is something called documentary hypothesis, J-E-D-P theory. Different sections of the Torah, the first five books. Uh, the J stands for the Jehovah section. Uh, you know, all the, all the times the word Jehovah or Yahweh is used were written by certain people. Um, then you have the, the E, which is Elohim, the word Elohim. That was any sections that used the word Elohim was written by another, another writer. Um, the the Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy passages the, dealing with the law. Uh, those were written by somebody else. And then the P is the priestly section. So those were written by somebody else. And then you have different ones that wrote different ones. You had the redactors or the editors that pieced them all together, starting in the time of Solomon and extending all the way to the time of Ezra. Okay, so basically what they've done with uh, documentary hypothesis is they've taken the, the theory of evolution and they've applied it to the scripture is all that it is. Okay, that the scriptures just kind of evolved over time. And by the time Ezra comes, wow, hey, we've got this ni nice, neat little packages pieced together by all of these editors, redactors is what they call them, all throughout history. But this was written 4,000 years, okay? That's, that's, that's how we operate. Um, how amazing is it 
that God specifically states that someone's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, mortal blow. And while doing so, he's going to be wounded, but not a mortal wound. See, like I said, kind of general, but kind of not, right? And if you think about the way God's laying things out here, don't you think it's kind of interesting that he starts with this? Because this really is the key issue, isn't it? What's going to get undone? What was done and what's going to get undone? Well, the serpent caused all this. He's the one that needs to be destroyed. If, if God fixed what happened, but the serpent was still allowed to continue, it would just happen again. You see? So the serpent is the one that actually has to be dealt with. But the way God states the way he's going to be dealt with is the fact that it's going to be a crushing blow, but he's still going to kind of be around. You, you, you crush a snake on the head, it's still, it's still twitching for a while, and you better not get close because it'll still bite. Um, but in the, in the act of doing that, what you're going to find there is a, a very devastating wound, but someone will recover from that. So here's what I'm going to do. This is a good place to pause for a moment. I've been going for a little bit. Anybody have any questions or comments on this? Um, and again, if you, if you do have one, um, unmute, I see, I see Rob, uh, O'Keefe unmuted. So Rob, what's your question, sir, or comment? So, um, can you hear me? Yeah, let me, I'm going to call, I'm going to have you go up a little bit. So you might want to get a little bit closer to your microphone there, buddy. Um, so I think this whole situation in Genesis chapter three, um, I think you can draw the inference that it presupposed that, are, that the, 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 uh, the rebellion of Satan has already taken place. Yes. Or, or it could be that this is the rebellion. I mean, this is one of the, the ways that Satan rebelled. But yeah, definitely the rebellion is, has taken place um, and, and the cursing is, is uh, going on here. Absolutely. Okay, so um, yeah, I think you can draw that inference from the very first thing. I don't have my Bible in front of me. I'm thinking, I can go over it so it's good. But I think you can draw the inference just in the first line of Satan there in Genesis chapter 3 when he draws Eve's attention to the, to the tree. Mm -hmm. By just saying that. You know. mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's very subtle, of course. Yeah, it is. It is. It's the way that advertising and marketing work. It's the same thing. Just draw your attention. Yeah. Draw, their, draw the prospect's attention to what, to what you want them to partake of, to acquire. Mm -hmm. And their affection should not be far behind. That, that's exactly it. And, and notice the what she, you know, she said it was, um, uh, what, what was it exactly? She said, um, uh, good for food. Yeah. 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 Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Yeah. All three of those are listed there. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Good, 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 good comments. Uh, Monty looks like, uh, you got one too. Yeah, I was just going to make a quick comment. Um, 
this is the first time I've actually seen something where in the NI, I'm, I'm assuming that that you were maybe looking at the NIV Bible. This is the first time I've actually seen uh, something where the NIV gets it, um, where the NASB does not. I mean, it's not that it's wrong, but the way that you explained um, in, in chapter three, the way you explained the way we're going to be crushing the the serpent's head and but yet they're it's going to bruise our heel is, mm. is is very it reads very different from the nasb than it does the, the niv and the way that you described it yeah yeah i'm actually reading out of the nasb and in the they have the footnote there in the verse uh for crush but they they leave it bruise um in the main part of the text there yeah, but so and NAV, I, do, I believe, does do does do crush. It, it does. I was just checking it out, and, and mm. I mean, I, I'll, I'll confess that I'm um, I'm sitting at my my counter here, so I have limited space, and I'm using my Bible on my phone while using the computer. So I, I do need to go check my my uh, my note in the, in the Bible there, in my, in my real book. Mm -hmm. Bible. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yeah. Anybody else have anything? Yeah. Yeah, it is in chapter 12. Yep. Yeah, the serpent of old. Yep. Yeah. It said, uh, Yeah, and yeah, he's called the serpent there, you know, from the presence of the serpent, the serpent poured water uh, like a river out of the mouth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's there in Genesis, to, or uh, Revelation 12. Yep. Yep. And one other thing I would like to ask is when you talk about the, the uh, scholars mm -hmm. uh, trying to attribute the writing of Genesis to the different people through time and how it over time. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they have really no evidence. They don't. There's no, there's no manuscripts that they can point to. And so they just, they, they begin with the assumption that the, that the Bible cannot possibly be the Word of God. It's got to be produced by people mm -hmm. somehow. So that, that's their starting point. Yep, it, it is. And in, in, in that in that assumption. Oh good. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well let's uh let, let's keep rolling here. We've got about uh thirteen minutes and uh we'll we're gonna crank out the rest of Genesis three here. There's a few things I wanna I wanna point out here uh before we, we continue. Um and, and we'll probably finish with just this one and then we'll get into the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob um, and then uh, Genesis 49 with, with the prophecy of, of Shiloh coming in. Um, 
Oh, by the way, just, and I'll mention this at the end too, uh, next week we won't be having, having class. That's, it's going to be Memorial Day. Uh, so um, I'm going to be doing some traveling, so I will not be, not be here. So one of the questions I wanted to, wanted to kind of answer um, is, you know, this seems to indicate that when, when whoever this guy is, this, this seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent, you know, even though he might still exist for a little while after that, he's not going to be not going to be functioning. He's he's going to be you know have a lot less power. So, is there anything that that's found in the in the New Testament that kind of lays this out? Is there anything that's you know out there that Satan's reign, this this devil, this serpent, his reign's being brought to an end? So we're gonna we're gonna finish up with this concept here. So let's go to let's go to John uh, chapter twelve. John chapter 12. So in John chapter 12, uh, we're going we're gonna to head back to, to verse number 27. John chapter 12, verse 27. It says, Now my soul has become troubled. <clears throat> uh, let me get my Bible in front of me. You can tell I'm wearing the glasses these days. Uh, eyes aren't working quite as well as they used to. It says, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that uh, it had thundered, while others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was to die. Now, isn't that interesting? We go back to Genesis chapter 3, right? And we see a crushing and a bruising. Here, and, and that's, gonna, that's bringing his reign to an end. That's the rule of this world being cast out. I mean, he's crushing him on the head. And the act that he uses to crush him on the head that's going to bruise the heel is him being lifted up above the earth, signifying the manner of death with which he was going to die. So Jesus, in the concept of, of, of bringing down the ruler, is, is making reference to himself being lifted up, which is the bruising of the heel that is going to take place in the crushing of the head. I find it interesting that the whole thing is actually laid out right there in that whole context. Um, so again, I don't think it's, it's uh, a mistake that that's being done like that. I think that's, that's, that's quite on purpose. Uh, let's flip over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to be in verse, oh, let's see. Let's go back to verse number 13, Colossians 2.13. It says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, here's the, the, the part. 
When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. So again, you see these, these angels, you see these, these rulers and authorities, the heavenly ones. They have been disarmed, okay? Nothing like disarming a snake and crushing its head, right? Um, and he, he made a public display over them, having triumphed over them through him. So the, the, the concept, now again, need, need to add a little bit to this. I don't want you to think that it's just the crucifixion because obviously if all Jesus did was die on the cross, the only thing that would have happened would have been the bruising of the heel. But in the resurrection and the subsequent ascension and glorification of Christ, what you have there is the final act of the crushing of the head. And I think that's an exceedingly important point because even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if, if we only hope in this life uh, or only have hope in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied, right? So we, we have this, this hope that comes through the resurrection of the dead and that is where Jesus showed who he was. He was declared the son of God, but with power through the resurrection of the dead, right? So, so recognizing that is, is part of this whole public display. All right, uh, let's see, three more passages. First uh, John chapter three. And again, these, these are just a few. There's, I'm sure we can all find a lot more here. First John chapter three. And let's go to uh, verse number seven. First John three, seven. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned since the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Interesting. He appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Um, best way to do that, to destroy the devil himself, right? And to give his people, God's people, the ability to overcome those. And we see from the context, he's really talking about a righteous character, right? I mean, First John's really loaded with that kind of concept. Um, I'm not going to, we, we were going to go to Revelation 12. I'll tell you what, let's go there anyway. Uh, so it's interesting, Rob, Rob brought that up because uh, we are going to check that out here real quick. So Revelation 12, we're talking about the war in heaven, right? We're talking about um, the war where Michael and his angels waged war. And what we see here in verse number seven, and this is the passage that Rob was referencing, uh, he says, and there was war in heaven. This is Revelation chapter 12, verse seven. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, <clears throat> now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. And notice this, they overcame him because of the blood of a lamb and because of the word of their testimony and did not love their life even to death or even when faced with death. So again, serpent of old, and notice how he uses the word deceives. It's exactly what we see in there with the serpent, right? So, so there's a, a big connection. And later on in, in the chapter two, we see the serpent being referenced as well. Um, so we see all those names listed there, like Rob was mentioning. 
The last one I want to show you, and then again, I'll open it up for, for final comments and questions. Romans chapter 12. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. So let's go to verse 19, Romans 16, 19. It says, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Wow, that's really cool, isn't it? What do you think that's referencing? See, here's the way it works, you guys. And you know this just by way of exhortation. I kind of like exhorting here uh, towards the end. Just like we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, just like we follow the process. Romans 6 says, you know, our process of being born again, we're just following in his example, right? In the same way, just as Jesus crushed the head of the serpent through his death, burial, resurrection, glorification, we too, through our lives, get to crush the head of the serpent. But just like it bruised him on the heel, do you think crushing the head of the serpent, we're going to get away without getting our heel bruised? Of course not. Of course not. Remember what he says in Hebrews chapter 12. He goes, you have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of blood and you're striving against sin. How far does God expect us to go in our battle against sin? All the way to us shedding blood, just like Jesus. Look, we're here to follow in his footsteps, to follow his example. We are disciples of his we're Christians. We belong to Christ. We're followers of Christ. So as he crushed the head of the serpent, we crush the head of the serpent. As it bruised him on the heel, it's going to bruise us on the heel. But we're guaranteed the victory if we have faith in him. Guaranteed. We're guaranteed to crush the head if we persevere, if we have faith, if we walk in the very footsteps of Christ, because we'll get the same victory that he did. All right, I am finished for tonight. I actually had the really weird idea that I was going to get through um, like four different prophecies tonight. But um, if y'all, some of y'all have studied with me and stuff, you know that I have a tendency to, to get a little long-winded sometimes. So hopefully that's not uh, discouraging. Um, any questions or comments, remember to unmute yourself. Uh, any questions, comments as we are wrapping up? No? Okay. Well, tell you what. I'm going to go ahead and turn off the recording. Yeah. Interesting that you're, you know, we're not going to...